30 years ago when I was starting to look at Canada-US relations, my source of information were the Globe and Mail delivered on an Air Canada flight down to Washington, and I would go through the paper. You know, that's what I had. I had a shortwave to listen to Radio Canada International just to get kind of the news. That's it. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. It has been an eventful time, I must say, in the Canada-U.S. relationship. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian-American Business Council, and I'm joined by my partner in crime, Chris Sands. Hi, Scotty. Nice to be back on the street with you. Great to be back on the street. And uh, the street's been a little blockaded lately. We want to talk about that. Uh, Not just Canusa Street, but bridges and roads and everything else. It's a very uh, monumental time, I I think I would say, in Canada-U.S. relations. And I'm quite excited about our guest today because... Emma Jacobs is not only a dual citizen, having uh, grown up and lived on both sides of the border, but she's also one of the reporters that has gained a fair amount of fame in covering the recent uh, activities, the trucker convoy, the blockades and everything else. And so uh, she's one of the leading uh, voices, I should say, in in covering the story. And, and I'm really happy uh, that she's joined us. But Chris, let me turn it over to you to introduce Emma properly, and then we'll have a quick conversation. Well, I think you've said all the important stuff, uh, but I will draw a couple of things out. She is um, an internationally known broadcaster, has worked with NPR, National Public Radio, and Public Radio International's The World Program, Marketplace, and also Latino USA. Her writings appeared, she's not just a broadcaster and a good voice, she's also uh, a writer, and her work has appeared in the Washington Post in long reads in the New York Times and Atlas Obscura, which is actually a great site. I really actually enjoy getting to that. And now here's the part to be a little bit intimidated by Scotty. She has produced podcasts for National Geographic, ESPN, Audible, and the Smithsonian Museum of American Art. So hopefully, in addition to telling us about uh, about the border and the protests, she'll also be able to give us some tips on how we can make Canusa Street more uh, exciting. Well, yeah, that would be great. And, you know, uh, with all due respect to our current podcast team, whom I love, uh, Emma, you know, we may need we may need to retain your services once you've had enough of journalism. <laughs> uh, where we are today, it is the day after Valentine's Day. It is the day after the Prime Minister of Canada invoked Emergency Measures Act to um, to deal with the blockade situation. From your point of view, Emma, um, maybe maybe talk to us about how this all began, uh, this blockade, these protests, and where you think it stands today. Yeah, and just maybe a caveat first, which is things are developing so quickly in so many locations that trying to be up to the minute is always a challenge. You know, just the number of statements and press conferences being held over the course of the day are more than any one person can follow. No, absolutely. And and actually, this we hope this pod is timeless because we can, we cover all kinds of Canada-U.S. issues. So caveat noted. But uh, anyway, there is uh, there is a particular reason we're talking to you. So uh, so catch us up. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it starts a little over two weeks ago or, or a little earlier when some of these trucks got on the road, joined by other vehicles. I think it's important to make the distinction. This was not just truckers who were, you know, ostensibly upset about vaccine requirements at the border, but there have been been other organizers and other supporters along the way who who gathered in Ottawa. I think the first or the first folks arrived on the 28th or the 29th and the bulk of the convoy arrived on the 29th. Yeah, in January. 
Exactly. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, the, the one of the first border blockades got underway in Alberta and they dug in. It seemed like the police have said at least that they, they weren't prepared for protesters to stay beyond the weekend. They didn't necessarily expect this to be you know, different, different than other demonstrations the capital is used to dealing with. But a couple hundred vehicles have been downtown and, you know, they're keeping their engines on 24-7 and, and making making noise in a lot of other ways since. To the point where we are today, where no one's absolutely certain how to dislodge them or even, you know, I think how serious a threat this poses is, is something that a lot of people are still trying to to work through. Yeah, you know, this when this started out a few weeks ago as as a protest in the in the capital, um, I I had one view of it. Right, we're used to protests; people express their opinions all the time, and that's a that's an important part of of a, of a democracy and a free society. Uh, there will be a lot of a lot of aftermath. I guess the the Ottawa police chief resigned today. I think there will be a lot of you know sort of. Um, going back and seeing what what went wrong, particularly in Ottawa, but but I got really interested in it when it became a blockade of the Canada-U.S. border because it's one thing to express your view; it's another thing to stop people's egress to wherever they need to go—hospital, school, grocery store, uh, their job—and then when you, on top of that, you block the busiest border crossing. Um, that's that's another um, that's another level. I wonder in, in in your coverage of this, what has been the most surprising or bizarre aspect of it from from everything you've looked at? Because you've been you've been living this from Montreal, or are you in Ottawa today? I'm not I've sure. Been back and forth over the the past couple of weeks. I mean, I, the one other thing I would say to your your point about the border blockades is, you know, much like in Ottawa where they're having a really outsized impact because of these big vehicles, um, they found you know the spot where they could have the greatest impact on. U.S. Canada trade with the ambassador pension, you know, it was only a couple hundred people at most. It's not a huge number of people, but they they they're strategic and having this very outsized impact for their their numbers. I mean, that gets me to the point where one of the you know, fundamental difficulties around covering this is that there is a lot of misinformation circulating, and people believe it very firmly, and so. You know, for example, I get emails that the convoy was 74 miles long from people who are absolutely convinced that is the truth. And that includes people in the crowd who are absolutely convinced. Someone told me last week, like 10,000 more vehicles were on the road to join them in Ottawa. So that's that's very pervasive to, to one degree or another. Some misinformation is, is less serious than than others, but you're operating in an environment in which people on the ground are getting a lot of information from social media, from people at the head of their movement from media sources that are are more ideologically driven it it just it makes it very challenging because it it stokes their sort of mistrust of your coverage um and it also means you don't necessarily have a, a common set of facts to to have a conversation with absolutely you know that's one of the features um that i noticed of of what happened here in washington on january 6th was people not having a common agreement on what's true or what's real. Uh, any, anyway, I agree with you that that is a larger thread here. Uh, but over, over to you, Chris, what are you thinking about this? Well, I wonder, um, Emma, since this is something that from the U.S. side, many of our, our regular audience will have seen things just like you, you said, things that have been reported in the various media and you know on the right and on the left, everybody has their favorite flavor. 
Um, but, but you have the advantage on us because you, you were actually on the ground. You had the opportunity to talk to people. Um, how would you describe the, I guess, the motivation, the bill of demands, the complaint that really rallied all these truck drivers together? It, 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 what did they think they were trying to do or trying to express in, with this protest? So I think it's important to know what I don't know is if the people who are willing to speak to me are representative of, of the group as a whole. And you do also get different sort of motivations expressed for being there. With one exception, everyone who's been willing to tell me their vaccination status is not vaccinated um, and, and have, have various reasons um, you know, that, that they say they're, they're not interested, but a lot of them you know, come from distrust of the, the science behind the vaccine. And, you know, a lot of them are dealing with with real restrictions on their lives as a result. They may have been suspended from a government job or they're not able, you know, if they're in Quebec or Ontario, though this is starting to change to go into certain restaurants or public spaces. And so they, they have grievances that are real and that I, I think, you know, have, have motivated them to be there and make it a little bit harder to sort of de-escalate the situation um, because a, a lot of the, the problems um, that, that they see themselves, um, you know, as, as experiencing are real, but they're also, you know, there are definitely other ideologies wrapped up in that. There are a lot of people, you know, comparing these vaccine requirements to North Korea or, or other authoritarian regimes. Right. So they're, they're really, there's an, a, ideological sort of framing to, to this that is about more than the vaccine. It's about, you know, preserving freedom or um, in some cases, you know, there's some people who may have more extreme ideologies. There was somebody who came up to me and said, you know, this is, this is about civil war with the, with the government, um, people against the government. So I think, I think there's a mix of motives in, in the crowd and that makes it difficult to, I think, figure out how to address it as well as talk about it. Chris, if I could just jump in for one second, I think that's right, Emma. I've had feedback, too, that this is about revolution. And from people that I are smart and that I respect, and I'm thinking revolution is a pretty large idea. It's a pretty big word. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, I think you have, I don't know if it's unique, but it's a very interesting perspective given uh, you live in Montreal. You've spent time in Paris. You wrote a book about the littler museums of Paris, I think. Can you... You know, one of the things that occurred is that this kind of um, protest was replicated um, in other parts of the world. So how is it? Be, do you have a, a point of view? Have you been you may be too busy to look at the coverage, but the French coverage in Canada, the how this is playing out in 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 France and Europe, the U.S., like all the different places that are covering uh, people that are following you uh, and that are covering this story. Do you see it? Um do you see it playing out differently? I, I would say I've done some reporting in the past on on radicalization um, and how you know certain communities talk to each other online. And what's really been stressed to me by people in Canada is that this is happening internationally. Americans talk to Canadians online and, and sort of right wing influencers who are very much um, have sort of glommed on to the the anti um, vaccine and anti mandate movements. Um, that they're in conversation. So I think it's hard to talk about this as emerging in, in isolation in Canada. Um, 
and and you all know as as Alex Panetta, the CBC reporter, does that a lot of the the slogans that are are used at these protests come straight out of American, um, you know, American political speech. People are chanting "We the People," right? Which is which is obviously not a not from a Canadian founding document. Um, so I, I think it's difficult to separate what's happening in Canada from from what's happening internationally. Um, and, and so it makes sense that that people internationally would respond to what's happening in Canada. Well, let me pick up on that, uh, Emma. You have that, you know, binational background and a lot of your reporting is going to Americans. And I, I know some people have brought a very American set of assumptions to what's going on in Canada. They they say, well, this is this is like Trumpism or this reminds us of, you know, things we've seen before. And so they sort of uh, you know, the French have that word or that phrase for something that has a cognate, but isn't exactly the same word in the other language. It's a faux ami. And I sometimes feel that we're, uh, many of us look and we say, oh, we think we understand it, but we're missing some of the subtleties that are, that are very Canadian. Can you talk about that? And as you've tried to tell this story to Americans, uh, what are some of the differences between, or maybe just uniquely Canadian characteristics of this? Is there anything that stands out at you and maybe advice not to assume it's just like what we see in the U.S., but maybe has a twist? Yeah, I can try. I mean, I think the commonalities are that, you know, it, it is a, a populist movement, as a lot of experts have identified it, because it is, you know, really a, a feeling that elites are imposing imposing measures on the population. I think, you know, a, a key difference is, Canadians are overwhelmingly vaccinated and, and even pretty heavily pro-vaccine man, mandates, whatever that means. You know, there, there are a lot of different levels of governments that are, are imposing different rules and requirements. In, in general, also, you know, the difference between Canada and the U.S. is that the, the measures have been, by and large, much stricter here um, in Canada than in the U.S. And, you know, I, I think that set the stage for for what has happened, but also the way in which this is received, because a lot of people are, are frustrated and a lot of people felt like, you know, measures in their province may have been poorly justified or explained. And so if you have only like a, a rough understanding of, of the, the protests themselves and why people are there, you know, you might be um, initially supportive. But there there is also the sense that as people learn more about the protests and their tactics and their leadership, who often are sort of these known right-wing influencers that a lot of Canadians are disenchanted or 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 become less become less less and less supportive of the the protests continuing. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that uh, a dimension of that which is the way in which this became uh I remember if I got in trouble and I, I or I was complaining about something my mother would say don't make a federal case out of it. I don't know if people say that in Canada but um but I think We've seen over the last two years a lot of the frustrations being very localized. And just as in the U.S., people complain about a governor or like a governor, it was at the level of the provinces that a lot of the restrictions were were imposed. And so you had protesters disconnected. And then all of a sudden, with the discussion of a border requirement, it became federal and everyone converged on Ottawa. Can you talk a little bit about that that shift and how that may have contributed to this muddied water of mixed motivations and so on as people came together in a sort of moment like that? Well, also it might be fed by those those motivations, right? Like if if initially you're sort of you don't like Trudeau and you're you're politically you know distrustful of of the federal government in particular, 
um, you know, that might motivate you to take the, the federal vaccine mandate um, for that to take sort of outsized importance for you. There also have been over the past two weeks, there have been um, regional um, protests, usually on the weekends in Quebec City, in Edmonton, in Toronto, really sort of targeting provincial government. So there, there is, I think, the recognition among some that that most of what is impacting their lives, um, particularly, well, I'll, I'll get back to this, but most of what is, is impacting their lives is provincial. And I should just say that, you know, like what has been confusing since the start of this is that what changed for the truckers in, in terms of returning to Canada is they're no longer exempt from quarantine if they are unvaccinated. However, they're also no longer allowed into the U.S. if they're not vaccinated. So there, there are ways in which the federal government could never satisfy, you know, what was ostensibly the, the demand that birthed this, this movement. So we have a few more minutes with you, Emma, um, and, and we're grateful to you. I, I want to talk about... Uh, as a, as a journalist covering this story. Years ago, when people were protesting, they really wanted coverage, right? So if, if a journalist wanted to wade into a protest, um, it was great because, because part of the reason you're protesting is to get your story out there. It seems to me that there is a level of hostility and distrust. You talked about it a little bit, but also hostility, not just distrust, but hostility towards um, towards journalists that are not that are not spokespeople for for the cause right journalists that are just regular journalists trying to report on what's happening um and i wonder if you're experiencing that if this if this feels different somehow from other stories you've covered or other movements like just personally how, what is it like to cover this thing you've talked about you know sources of information and trying to prove them before you report them, I think. But how does, how does it feel just from your vantage point being in the in the soup for the last several weeks? I mean, my experience has, I think, been different than if I had a, a video camera or if I, you know, I was there with the CBC logo on my equipment. I think there, there are certain outlets that people are frustrated with and certain things that sort of inspire people um, to, to, to try to, you know, get in a shot. There, there are certain things that I'm, I'm not hearing. Um, I think there are a lot of people um, who are very frustrated with coverage and they express that frustration to me. I've had people end interviews um, if they, they didn't like the direction of questioning, because again, they, they just don't feel, for example, that, um, you know, flags that have been really spotted in the crowd, like Confederate flags or, or spots, because they, they, they believe that's a false flag. Um, that somebody, you know, came in and who was trying to undermine the movement um, or they or they feel it's so unrepresentative of the cause they see themselves as a part of that they don't want to be asked about it. Right. So they'll end, end the interview. Um, but on the whole, I don't think my my experiences have been as negative as as some other reporters who have been, you know, have dealt with a lot more direct aggression. Um, I have found um, I was at the the sort of depot supply depot site um, that's that's outside of the main protest. And what I did find are, are people, you know, trying to really control who enters their space and, and who reporters talk to um, and some sort of self-appointed security who, who are, are deliberately intimidating, I would say. Yeah. Well, how do you, I just have one more question then maybe Chris can wrap up with a final question. How do you see this playing out? What do you, what do you, how, you know, you can't, they can't stay there forever, presumably. 
Yeah, it's really hard to tell. Um, and, and I think they're the people I've talked with, you know, in ter- terms of people who are observing with expertise in this area, um, you know, partly think it's helpful if it goes long enough that, and, and measures are, are strict enough that they convince a lot of people to go home before there's any, you know, overt confrontation between law enforcement and demonstrators and other people who are just concerned about, you know, the longer it goes, the greater potential there is for an accident, you know, where some of these jerry cans catch fire or for, for some, some negative outcome to, to take place. So it's tricky and it, it's definitely, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball and I, I can't predict what's going to happen, but I think those are the tensions that make it difficult for government to figure out what to do as well, I was, would imagine. Sorry, one last one. So given that, do you get fatigue with the story at some point? Like, at what point do you say, you know what, I'm going to cover something else? They can camp out in Ottawa till the cows come home. This is like no longer newsworthy. These are decisions that are made uh, above me, I would say. You know, <laughs> okay, fair Oh, enough. no, you're a prisoner of the story. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I wanted I wanted to maybe ask about something, and you'll have to forgive me. It's sort of a professorial type question, but I I, I mean it sincerely. Um, the sort of late great political scientist sociologist in the United States, Seymour Martin Lipset, used to talk about differences between the U.S. and Canada. And a couple of the grabber lines that he had one was that if you look at the American Constitution, it it makes the purpose of government life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness with a sort of bias towards that freedom to be free and to choose your own adventure, etc. Whereas Canada's constitution, inherited from the British but reinstated uh, in 1982 by the Canadians, calls for peace, order, and good government. And another of his lines is that uh, the U.S. is the country of revolution, Canada the country of evolution. So, both of those suggest that, you know, in Canada, the bias is against risky out there behavior. That's a more American thing. Um, and they would prefer order and, and having everyone be quite civilized. I wonder, you're on the ground now. Um, do you think that those distinctions between Americans and Canadians still hold? It's hard for me to speak to you because I feel like, you know, even regionally within both the U.S. and Canada, there, there's such a, a difference. You know, even if you just look at how people have approached the pandemic. Um, though, you know, what's true across Canada is, is vaccination rates are quite high. Um, I mean, I I think that the big, the big difference that's often pointed to right now, um, both by people I'm speaking with, but also, you know, other, other media is that, uh, the Canadian political system is structured in ways that don't necessarily, um, reward taking an extreme position. And, and, you know, we're, we're probably going to see a test of that and how this sort of populist impulse, like how that's going to play out in the political system. But because the system favors the center, it it may just have different political implications than it does in the U.S. Good reminder that we shouldn't take our American lenses and think we understand uh, what we're seeing across the border. Um, but it's great that we have reporters like yourself who are able to speak both languages, American and Canadian, and kind of help us to understand the story. I really appreciate your your time today. Thank you for coming on Canusa Street. Thank you. I, I hope I'm able to, to navigate those two worlds as, as successfully as you think. <laughs> well, whether you like it or not, you're, you're, you're sort of standing, what is it the pretenders used to sing in the middle of the road? That's where you'll find me. You're, you're in the middle of Canusa Street, one foot on the American side, one foot on the Canadian side. It's a, it's a tricky place to be. For sure. 
Keep it up, Emma. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for for your reporting. And, uh, you know, as important as this story is, we look forward to talking to you about another big Canada U.S. story, if there ever is one in the next, in the coming weeks and months and years. So thanks very much for, for coming along and joining us. Thank you. Well, Chris, that was a terrific discussion. Uh, Emma is right there in the middle of everything and her her reporting, even if you just follow her on Twitter, you'll learn a lot about uh, what's actually quite a, quite an impactful um, scene, not just for Canada, but for Canada-U.S. relations and Canada's reputation in the world. So I, I appreciated Emma, you know, taking a minute to come join us. Well, and I know a lot of our listeners will be catching the podcast as events have already unfolded. And it's one of the challenges, this is history in the making, well, however you judge it, good history, bad history, beginning of the end or a turning point, it's hard not to feel that this isn't one of those moments we'll remember and be interpreting, debating for years to come. And that first draft of history we got from Emma, her reporting, I think, uh, is maybe just the first part of a longer conversation between Canadians and Americans about what this moment means and how we interact with each other. Absolutely. Well, you know, just while we're talking about it, let's spend a few more minutes because I, I, uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to you very much since the, since the protests and the blockade, and I'm, I'm interested, and I hopefully Canusa Street listeners are interested too. So yesterday, I mentioned this in our conversation, but we didn't talk much about it. Yesterday, the Prime Minister of Canada invoked the Emergency Measures Act um, for the first time, uh, you know, since it's been in that. What do you what do you make of that? First of all, what do you from your point of view as maybe the leading scholar on Canada U.S. relations? What did what's your reaction to that move in particular? Well, it's pretty extraordinary because, uh, as I mentioned in the interview with Emma, I thought it was that we had had unhappy Canadians. There had been sort of objections to the whole COVID experience, and of course, lots of people in both countries are just tired of. The restrictions and they want to debate, well, can I have a little more freedom here and there? So that's been with us for a long time. But it seemed as though the federal government stepped in with just really a very reasonable discussion of how to adjust the border restrictions. And we've all been talking about that as well. And it, it was like the prime minister put his finger in an electric socket. Suddenly all the current, all the unhappiness aimed at Ottawa. Now, one way of responding might have been to to remind people, yes, we've heard the complaint, it's mainly with the provinces, we're going to let the provinces resolve that. But instead, by invoking the Emergency Powers Act, the Prime Minister took ownership of the issue, took leadership in a way. And whether that turns out to have been um, a good move or a bad move, history will judge. But if you think about it a little bit, um, one of the comparisons, Andrew Cohen, who writes uh, for the Globe and Mail, uh, long-standing journalist professor at uh, Carleton University, point out was the similarity between the FLQ crisis, uh, the Front for Liberation of Quebec that had kidnapped two individuals. Uh, their whereabouts were unknown. This was a group that was committed to violence, mostly blowing up inanimate objects, but now had escalated to taking people. And, uh, and we saw the federal government, actually Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, invoke um, the War Measures Act to impose a kind of uh, martial law of sorts in Montreal to try to get a handle on the situation. And if you compare the two, what's interesting is in Montreal, we had what we would call a, a traditional Canadian provincial response, which is our National Guard belongs to the states and gets federalized in an emergency. In Canada, it's the opposite. The federal government 
controls the militia, and the provinces ask for help when their local resources are overwhelmed. And that's what happened in Montreal. The mayor said, I need help. That went to the province. The province asked the federal government, and of course, troops were provided. But there was a chain there that respected local authority. What's interesting here is that it wasn't Doug Ford saying, you know, we need your help in these two cities in Ontario, or Jason Kenney out in Alberta, and or, um, or the premier in, in Manitoba either. It was the federal government stepping in from the top. Now that doubles down a little bit on, uh, for the prime minister taking ownership of this issue. What does it mean for the future of federalism? And I have to think that a lot of the premiers who've been getting a lot of flack during the, the, um, the long period of COVID were relieved to let him be the target for a while because certainly Jason Kenney's popularity is down. A lot of these other politicians seem to get out of the way to let Trudeau embrace this. And, uh, but that's a lot of weight on his shoulders, especially for a minority government. Well, you know, the, my only reaction to what you just said is the the federal decla- declaration of emergency measures actually came after the Ambassador Bridge blockade was cleared. So Premier Doug Ford of Ontario did declare a state of emergency. And the mayor of Windsor, to whom I give a great deal of credit, um, just, you know, The Ambassador Bridge blockade didn't start at the beginning. This story started weeks ago, and Ottawa has been uh, occupied for weeks. But when the Ambassador Bridge, uh, you know, was blocked, that upped the ante in many ways. That's that's when, you know, I got really interested uh, in particular in this. Not that that economics are more important than the people who live in Ottawa, but it's just a different order of magnitude in terms of the threat, the economic threat, shall we say. Um, so, So, you know, the what I would note is the prime minister, the federal action came after all of that. And it was, you know, um, it'll be interesting. It really will be interesting to see how people sort this out afterwards and what it, what it means for future, for future, you know, uh, protests. Let let me ask you something else. So we didn't get a chance to talk to Emma about it and maybe it's a whole other podcast, but what are your views, Chris, on the role of crowdsourced funding? There's been a lot of talk about, um, money coming in from all over the world, but in particular the United States. Did, what role does the money play in all of this? Is it is it relevant? Is it is it overstated? What do you what do you think about that? Well, a, a couple of things. First of all, not knowing is worse. It's it's that way. Emma kind of touched on this in her coverage. People don't know what to think, and they assume the worst. And you know, so I think the fact that this is invisible to the general public is problematic. No matter, no matter what the actual composition is, people suspecting that, you know, millions or more of American money is fueling this, I think is really bad for the Canada-US relationship first, first of all. Second of all, um, there's a asymmetry of size. So, uh, US has 320, 330 million people and Canada has 38 million. So even if a fraction of a percentage of Americans sees this issue on the internet and decides to donate $20, that's even before you get to the exchange rate, which happens to favor the U.S. dollar right now, it can have a huge effect in a country that is relatively smaller. And, you know, if a million people in the U.S. care, that's a, that's a drop in the bucket for the U.S., but that's a million people who suddenly are giving money, that really distorts Canadian politics. And Canadian institutions aren't built for that. Um, and so just as a uh, as a principle of equity, I, I think actually Canada has very good laws about donations to political parties and to charities and so on. And it may be necessary to regulate the donation cross-border, at least to declare that you're not American, not Canadian and have that tracked because 
I, I won't assume that any of that's nefarious, but but this is a scale we haven't seen. For example, we know we know that there have been Americans who've donated to pro-life charities because they're concerned about you know uh, the abortion issue. We know that there are people who donated when Alberta had those wildfires up north. I know actually some of my students donated just for relief efforts. So you don't want to block cross-border flows, and you have to allow them for legitimate purposes. But when it's politics, there have to be rules of the game. And I think it's to Canada's uh, it's on Canada to figure out what those rules are. And then once they've made that decision. The U.S. really has to step up and help them with enforcement and getting discovery and getting companies that may be headquartered here to cough up information. Interesting. So so regulating the flow of money, um, as hard as that is, I think is relatively straightforward compared to the next thing I want to ask you about, which is regulating... Um, or not regulating, but how do you deal with... American media outlets, uh, American politicians who are now weighing in uh, as if they their point of view should matter, uh, you know, in an in a sovereign country like we saw a couple of United States senators who have, you know, talked about their point of view on whether or not Canada should have evoked Emergency Measures Act. They go directly after Prime Minister Trudeau. Do they do they have a right to do that, Chris? I mean, that seems to me that you know. Politics stops at the water's edge or at the at the 49th parallel, but not so much right now. What do you think? No, well, I, I think I think it's a sort of good neighborly thing. And maybe that's uh, too cute an analogy. But if if your next door neighbors are having a knockdown, drag out husband and wife fight, you know, stay out of it. <laughs> you know, you're, you're you're next door. Yes, they're making a lot of noise. You might have some complaints, but but really, you don't know the issues and you can't operate. And that's uh, I, I say this very advisedly. You and I are so lucky because we're in Washington and, and we have, you know, privileged positions and, and a lot of experience watching Canada US. So we understand the differences. And I don't want this to sound like, oh, the average Joe doesn't have a right to opinion because they don't have a fancy degree and they don't know as much as I do. It's, this is not an elite expert. I'm the only one who's right comment. But I do think that as you and I have to do all the time, um, the average person shouldn't over assume that they know what's going on in Canada, that they understand the nuances, that the references make sense. And before they weigh in, not that they shouldn't have a right to have an opinion, of course, that's fine. But 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 think about it, because when you don't understand fully all of the nuances, you may actually make things worse rather than better. And, and there's an old line we used to have, uh, the State Department mantra about Quebec separatism, which was a big fight in Canada for, for a long time and could still come back. And the State Department used to say, you know, we have a great relationship with a strong United Canada, but the future is for Canadians to decide, which was a way of saying we're paying attention, we care, but we're not, you know, we're not the deciders and we we respect Canada's right to go through their process and resolve it. I think we need to remember that kind of diplomatic approach, just even as citizens. We can't make citizens not have opinions, but maybe check a little bit of that and let the Canadian voices tell us more about what they think is going on rather than imposing our, our thoughts. Yeah, you know, it's we're we're in dicey, you know, waters here. I I just have to observe though that, you know, Canadians didn't hold back with their views about US politics in recent years, right? So, I don't th- I really think it's up to people of a of a country to get to have a political view. I mean, you and I are analysts. We analyze policies. Policies are not, you know, sovereign entities, but when it comes to politics, and who the leaders should be, um, who should be leading another country. I don't. I don't really think 
as an American, I have a right to have an opinion. I'm going to deal with whoever's elected by the Canadians. But but it's interesting to see, you know, I mean, there are Canadians that came to Washington on January 6th to participate in the quote-unquote stop the steal. That happened. We know some of them, right? Did they have a right to do that? Did they also donate money to that? Now, that turned into a whole other kettle of fish as this is. So anyway, I think we're I think we're into some pretty interesting um interesting areas here about who you know in in this close friendship where are the lines of propriety where you know how should money and information and political support flow it's 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 an interesting question. It is an interesting question and I I guess I'm a bit um pessimistic because we've had so much interaction uh over the years you know with Canadians will have opinions on who should win on The Bachelor, or uh, they'll weigh in on 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 which team should have won the Super Bowl. Like so, so we'll never, I think, convince people not to have opinions, or, or tell them not to speak because people will. And if we don't see it in public, it may be on a Facebook page, or it may be between families that have you know branches on both sides of the border. So I guess for me, the the thing I think we can do is just have a smidge of humility that maybe we don't know the whole situation and listen as much as we talk. Um, one of the things Emma said that struck me was how hard it was to get a fix on what were the motivations of the different, uh, the different groups and, and what was going on behind, you know, cabinet doors to talk about this emergency declaration. I, I do think it's a fascinating country. You and I both love watching Canada's relations, but, but, but listening is really important and, and we should listen to what people have to say and, Say well, okay, that's a Canadian opinion about American politics. Maybe not so persuasive, but but at the same time, I think um, the the only answer is not so much censorship. I think, although you can affect money, but it has to be uh, using common sense and you know critically looking at what's being said and who the sender is and saying, well, that's worth listening to, but I'm going to weigh this more carefully because it's coming from somebody who has more standing or more knowledge, etc. I know that's maybe pie in the sky, but I feel like we need to we need to change the culture, not actually come up with something from the outside that tries to get people to work against what's been their nature for a long time, which is they all have opinions about everybody, even about how who Kim Kardashian should hang out with and, and so forth. You just never stop that. So if we can't stop it, we could civilize it, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, my thought here is this is less about Canada versus the United States. It's actually much more fundamental and it's more challenging than Canada versus the United States. This is about what are our sources of information and how do we get to a point where everyone can agree on certain basic facts and tenets. And we've we've lost that, I think, Chris, right now. I think, you know, people are self-selecting their own sources of information and they excoriate others. That is a big, that's a big problem for Western democracy, for free society. It's not, this isn't, in Canada, if you want to attack something, you say, well, this is American style politics, right? Like, I don't think this is about that. I, I don't think, I think it's, I think it's deeper and, and more challenging actually, even than that. I would agree. I mean, the stage at which we are now in globalization, in the breaking down of barriers, the ease of communications and travel has opened up a window on Canada for Americans and Americans for Canada that previously was only really available to people in a sort of rarefied elite because they had the ability to travel or they had the CIA reports or the State Department's reports. So they, they had really good data. 
Um, I was reflecting on this 30 years ago when I was starting to look at Canada-U.S. relations. My source of information were the Globe and Mail delivered on an Air Canada flight down to Washington, and I would go through the paper. You know, that's what I had. I had a shortwave to listen to Radio Canada International just to get kind of the news. That's it. And now my students can pick up something on their phone and and instantly know that the prime minister just said this and actually listen to the video. So that disintermediation is a powerful trend. And if we could go back to the Middle Ages, there was a huge debate about education. It was originally seminaries for priests, and then suddenly we opened it up to everybody. And you can read a lot of American authors about that sort of democratization of education that created people who sort of half knew things but didn't really know them well. And we kind of mocked that and we worked it through. And now we have a, one of the most educated societies around. Whether they're smart, I don't know, but they're at least well-educated, spent a lot of money on it. Um, we're, we're at this turning point and we have so much access to information, but not necessarily knowledge. And, and there's got to be a, a way of interpreting this flood so that we can make better use of where we are. What I don't believe we can do is put the genie back in the bottle, uh, kind of go back to a more exclusive, you know, gatekeeper relationship where, where only a few of us get to have an opinion. Everybody will have an opinion. So now we have to talk about, well, if that's the case, how do we do that in a more, um, in a way that works out better for everybody and, and leads to more cooperation and not more confrontation. Well, I, I think that's a perfect a perfect place to say this is what Canusa Street is about, right? We want to um, provide both information and knowledge, a little bit of perspective and analysis. Uh, and, uh, and really, we're in this together. Canada and the United States are in these challenges together. The blockade wasn't about Canada being funded by the United States. It's not about... The United States being inspired by Canada. It is about us being in this whole conversation together. And how do we, you know, how do we relate to our brothers and sisters that with whom we disagree? So I think that's we'll we'll continue to invite people for conversations on Canusa Street. And you know, Chris, I learn from you every time we do this. So um, thank you for thank you for coming <laughs> along the journey. You're very welcome, Scotty. I think I think that one thing that in our hyper individualized and very expressive world is rediscovering community and neighborhood. And that that spirit used to guide Canada's relations more than it did. I believe it will come back when we can realize the humanity of each other, uh, but we've a way to go. So for right now, you and I will create a crosswalk on Canusa Street so you can go from one side to the other safely and not get run over uh, by protesting. <laughs> I now have an image of you in a crossing guard uniform, not to be confused with a yellow vest, that's different. I was uh, in the safety <laughs> patrol in elementary school, so I'm used to putting up the little stop sign and, and letting the kids walk across the street. That could be my retirement job, you never know. <laughs> All right, well, thanks a lot, my friend. Great to see you. Great to see you too. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.